If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. should know, even if they don't know, they should know that music is not just notes on the stave. It's, it's, it's everything which goes with it. That was Tim Blanning on how music shapes history. And they became a sort of an, an escort party, a convoy party to help people go from one holy place to another. And that was Michael Harg on the Knights Templar and the Crusades. Welcome to the History Extra podcast with me, Rob Attar. This podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire and Google Play. Currently, our Google Play and Kindle Fire editions are only available in the UK, but we hope to roll them out to other countries soon. You can find details of all of our different editions on our website, which is historyextra.com. In our January issue, Cambridge professor Tim Blanning wrote a piece where he picked out 10 milestones of Western music. He joined me down the line from Cambridge not long ago to explain how music has the power to influence history and why the X Factor stands comparison with the likes of Handel and Beethoven. So, Tim, in the article that you've written for our magazine... You selected 10 milestones for Western music. How did you go about making that choice? I started with the book I've written, The Triumph of Music, and uh, really extracted from that, not all of them, of course, because in some cases I go back earlier, but I I pulled out those which seemed to me to sum up uh, a whole, not just a, a big episode, a big moment, but also that stood for... A, a wider period and and a wider problem, which illustrated not just that particular instant, but but more. That's 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 why I did, and that's what I tried to to do in just the the few lines which are uh, attached to each of these various events. And so, so you feel that music often does reflect wider historical trends. It not only reflects wider historical trends, but it can also affect them. And uh, I think that. There's been a reluctance on the part of too many historians, not all historians, but on the part of many historians to see music as just a reflection, as something which can be sort of strapped on as a kind of additional illustration of a point which is being made as they see it at some more fundamental of social or economic reality. But in my view, and I tried to make this point in the book, that um, repeatedly music is, is an active player not least because, of course, it comes as part of a, a wider cultural complex. It's unusual to find, not unique, but it's unusual to find music which is completely isolated. It's, it's usually coming as part of a more um, impressive general cultural packet. Because of that importance, are there examples of, say, leaders or military figures exploiting music to achieve their ends? I think that's been the case right from the, right from the word go, actually, right from... Um, um, Joshua Jericho. Um, there are plenty of examples in the Bible, incidentally, of music being used in a in a combative and 
positive kind of way. Um, but more recently, uh, the abuse and abuse of music, one can find examples from really every period in every country, I should say. One or two obviously stand out. I mean, the great anthems such as the revolutionary, the Marseillaise, I mean, the Marseillaise doesn't just sum up what was happening in the revolution or at one particular end of the revolution, but it also had a positive, a positive effect. Uh, ask the French soldiers in the 1790s and they would have told you that the Marseillaise was worth a, um, an extra army for them. Of course, they exaggerated, but uh, the, the role the Marseillaise played in, in mobilizing and, and in sustaining revolutionary enthusiasm was, was tremendous. And one could say the, say, say the same for, I don't know, the uh, Internationale, the, the communist anthem, or in a more sinister vein, um, the Horst Wessel song. Did the composers of these pieces of music, were they actively involved in these extra uses for the music or would they sometimes have been unhappy about how their work was exploited? In all those three cases, I think they would have been entirely happy with the way in which their music and words were used. And the clearest case is uh, Rouget de Lille, who wrote uh, the Marseillaise in the course of a single night. And that is well authenticated, incidentally. He wrote not just the music, but also the words in the course of a single night in April 1792, after news had reached Strasbourg, so he was stationed, that war had broken out. He was at a supper party where, well, it was with some very senior officers present, incidentally, uh, and there one of them lamented the fact that the army didn't have a proper battle hymn. And so Rouget de Lille, who was an engineering officer, um, said, all right, I'll go off and write one. And he, clearly he had drunk quite a lot by then, but it was a wine which inspired rather than deadened. And in the course of that night, um, he produces the Marseillaise, which is, has probably the most memorable tune of any song of that kind that's ever been composed. And the following evening, he went back um, to the same place, to the same, I forget, it was the mayor, it was the mayor of Strasbourg, that's right. Uh, and there it was given its first performance. And only later did it become known as the Marseillaise because it was adopted very much by the men of Marseille when they marched across France in July and August uh, 1792. The Marseillaise went on to become the French national anthem. Do national anthems have a particular power, do you think, as pieces of music to galvanise people? Yes, I think they do. Um, people sing more than they recite. Um, and it's very much easier to memorise uh, something if it is sung than if it is simply recited. That's, that's a well-known psychological fact, I think. And also people like to sing. And, uh, they, they, and they, even those people who have very poor voices, like myself, like to sing along in a crowd, whether it's a football crowd or the congregation in a church or whatever. And when the, the song has a particular resonance, I don't think it necessarily has to be the actual words, because often they're inaudible, um, nor does it necessarily have to have anything to do with the quality of the, of the tune. Um, well, no one could the best will in the world could describe um, God Save the Queen as being a particularly memorable tune. Well, it is memorable, but it's, it's hardly very distinguished. But when you put all these things together and you're in a big crowd singing, this can have um, a tremendous uh, emotional uh, impact uh, when the sum becomes much greater than the aggregate of the parts. Do you think some pieces of music then coming on from that point are much more important today, not because of the quality of the composition, but because of what, what they mean in a wider context? For example, um, the Shostakovich Symphony Number no. 7 that you talk about in the article. Yes, particular pieces of music can acquire connotations of that kind. I mean, the, uh, the Leningrad Symphony um, acquires the, the connotation of being a symbol of resistance. 
Uh, I think even Shostakovich's most enthusiastic admirers would concede that it's not his greatest piece of music. Um, but because of the circumstances in which it was written, it comes to have a meaning far greater than just the notes on the, on the stave. Everyone should know, even if they don't know, they should know that music is not just notes on the stave. It's, it's, it's everything which goes with it. Uh, and that audiences are, even, even an audience sitting in a hall without actually doing other thing other than um, tapping their toes or um, crackling sweet papers or whatever it is, they are actively involved in a, in a creative act. That's a very important point to make, it seems to me. And in the time before recording music, how would these pieces of music have been distributed around the population? How would the wider public have heard some of these rallying cries? Well, um, it's difficult to know to start, or how to start there. If one starts in, a, in the pre-industrial world, um, in an agricultural, a wholly agricultural community, then probably the, the most music, if not all, but most music that would have been heard by uh, organised music would have been music that was sung in church. Uh, and especially after the Reformation with the introduction of communal uh, psalm singing, for example. That's, that's, that's hugely important in involving the whole community. Not in all Protestant churches, because the, the more austere forms of Protestants, Calvinists, um, for example, disapproved of, of music in church. But uh, Luther was very enthusiastic about, um, about music, and so later, for example, were the, were the Methodists. And so um, for, for, for many people, their first, and I fear probably in some cases, their only contact with organized music would have been through congregational hymn and psalm singing. On the other hand, of course, and it's occurred to me while I've been speaking that one ought to add too, that folk music, folk songs, of course, are, are deeply embedded in local, in local communities. Uh, that's an aspect of music which, alas, has been lost, uh, primarily due to the cultural homogenization, due to radio and then more especially television. The last few examples that you included in the article are what we nowadays describe as pop music. Do you think that can play just the same kind of historical role that these, for example, opera and classical pieces did in the past? Yeah, much more so, because it involves far, far more people. I and mean, this is not a, an argument about quality, and uh, that's something which perhaps I didn't make sufficiently clear in my book, was that I wasn't talking about the triumph of good music, I was talking about the triumph of music, however defined. Anyway, one person's good music is another person's in, um, something that simply cannot be listened to. But the coming of the digital age or actually one needs to go back into the 19th century, and I think probably the invention of electricity and then subsequently the invention of amplification and radios and so on, has led to a popularization of, of music, which now means that it, it, it's, it plays a hugely important part in the life of the great majority of, of people living in an industrialized society. So could we see something like, for example, Rock Around the Clock as being just as important in cultural terms as, say, The Messiah by Handel, which you also picked out? Yes. More, um, I was about to say more so because more people were affected, but um, I, I don't want to get into an argument about that. Um, that, that, would, that would lead to all kinds of um, problems, I think. But yes, no, I think it was. It certainly was important. It was a, it was a, a key moment uh, in the eruption of youth culture. Uh, after after 1945, you, you, you can see it gradually building, but there, there there comes a catalyst, and you can identify Rock Around the Clock, which of course first made an impact, uh, a big impact, as being when it was played as the introduction to the Blackboard Jungle, a hugely successful film, had a, a great impact, 
And I suppose you could also then point to, almost immediately afterwards, to the emergence of Elvis Presley or the Beatles or whatever. But there, there, are, there are certain moments when a long-developing, long-gestating trend comes to, comes to fruition. I guess some people might have been surprised by your final pick, which was Leona Lewis winning the X Factor a few years ago. Why do you feel that that was so important? Because so many people were involved. And they were involved in an interactive way. Uh, and that was one of the strokes of genius, that, that a format was invented, which allowed people not just to, to listen to, to people, but actually to become involved through voting. So it's a, a kind of a, a, a talent show on speed. Um, inspired invention, hugely, hugely popular, and, and it continues right until this present day in, in all its various spin-off forms. It starts off as Pop Idol, and then comes the X Factor, and, and, so, and so on and so forth. And uh, I, I think it's a statistic which I give that uh, the number of people who, who voted for Leona Lewis when she won, was a colossal number. And similarly in the United States of America, a very much bigger country, of course, uh, with even, even higher saturation level of, of television, uh, there again, simply colossal voting figures were recorded, far more than in um, most, uh, most elections. Do you feel that pop music nowadays is still being used by, say, political parties or other people as a, a way of rallying people? I can't think of any specific example. Well, one can think of specific examples, but they don't work very well, do they? Uh, I'm trying to remember which party it was, and it's so significant in a way, I can't remember which one it was, who decided that Beautiful Day would, be, uh, would give them some oomph. A any politician who tries to go out of his or her way to, as it were, strap on some kind of, or to borrow some sort of charisma from, uh, from pop musicians, usually end up looking pretty silly, it's, it's, it seems to me. But I'm, what do I know? I'm a grumpy old, now, old man now. And it may well have an, uh, an impact and an appeal uh, to very much younger people. Uh, but I, I, I have my doubts about that. But in a, in, in a, in a general sense, every politician who aspires to be successful has to take account of popular culture. At the pinnacle of popular culture stands music. The piece that you wrote for us, we concentrated specifically on Western music. Is there a reason why that can't necessarily be seen in the context of wider global music? It's a very fair point and a very fair criticism. And it's, it simply derives from what I know about. Maybe I don't know much about that. I mean, I, I just do not know enough about world music uh, and didn't have the time, don't have the time to extend the argument or to investigate, to see whether the argument can be extended on a world basis. On the other hand, it has to be said that there has been a globalization of, of musical taste. And one can be in a shopping mall in, in Munich or San Francisco or Sydney or it might happen to be and you'll hear the Spice Girls um, rapping out uh, you know, the Wannabes song and, and, and incidentally thereby of course earning some nice little royalties for the girls. Um, so there's been um, a, a globalization, perhaps you might call it homogenization of, of popular music in, in, that, in that sense. But that's not really, I think, what your question was about. World music, which is very much a separate, can be regarded as a separate genre, I simply don't know enough about, I'm sorry. Would you say there is one piece of music that is the most important in music's history? No, I don't think a single, I don't think a single piece of music can be um, identified as uh, standing in lonely splendor as the moment. 
I mean, there are certain candidates, obviously. Um, Beethoven's Eroica Symphony would be one to pick, or Rock Around the Clock. But I, 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 don't, I don't think that's very fruitful, uh, to be honest with you. There are just lots and lots and lots of them, depending on which period, which genre uh, one's looking at. And just one final question. If, if we had you on Desert Island Discs now and you could only listen to one of these ten pieces of music or artists, which would it be? It would be, that's a very good question. You put me on the, on the spot there. Actually, it wouldn't be any of those. Uh, you twist my arm, it'd have to be the handle. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed That was Tim Blanning. Tim is the author of The Triumph of Music, which was published by Alan Lane in 2008. You can read his piece in the January issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Michael Hogg's new book, The Tragedy of the Templars, tells the story of the Knights Templar set against the background of the Crusades. Our section editor, Matt Elton, caught up with him recently to find out more. The story of the Crusades spans a huge period of time. How did you decide what to focus on in your new book? Well, I'm afraid I focused on a huge period of time uh, because usually when people write about the Crusades, they start immediately before the Crusades with the call to the Crusades in the West. In other words, in, say, 1095, when Pope Urban calls for a crusade. And that creates a false impression, as though the origin of the Crusades lay entirely in the West, and it ignores all the events that were going on in the East. In other words, the things that caused the West to respond. Uh, For example, um, the most immediate cause was there was a Turkish invasion, Uh, of the entire Middle East uh, and of uh, Asia Minor, which at that time, Asia Minor was part of the Byzantine Empire, was part of a a Christian world, as indeed was northern Syria. Um, So the Turks, now, you know, we're not talking about Arabs. The Arabs had invaded the Middle East 400 years before, but now this is something entirely new. Turkish tribesmen from the borders of China, really, uh, within a hundred years had arrived in the Middle East, taken over the Baghdad Caliphate, and made themselves uh, the bosses of the Middle East, had converted to Islam, and this was their war. Um, And it was rather frightening and threatening for the Byzantine Empire, which um, their capital was Constantinople, and there were the Seljuk Turks, standing opposite Constantinople across the Bosphorus. And uh, for the West, that was very threatening because if the Byzantine Empire fell, if the Turks crossed the Bosphorus, all of Europe was in danger of being overrun. So I've gone back into that history. I've gone back uh, several hundred years into that pre-Crusader history in order to show the conditions to which the uh, Crusaders responded. 
Okay, so how big an area are we talking geographically that these events were taking place in? Well, I mean, of course, I am concentrating on the immediate vicinity of the um, of Jerusalem, of uh, Syria and Palestine. That's the main um, center, the geographical center. But of course, it um, it does take into account the entire Mediterranean in a way, because the uh, Arabs had invaded all of North Africa, they had invaded Spain, they had invaded southern Italy, uh, all the way up nearly as far as Naples, they were in Sicily, they were in Sardinia, they were in the south of France. Uh, in other words, the, the amount of Europe that was not in Arab hands was a very narrow patch at one point. Um, so I do give some sort of sense of that geographical extent, uh, that in some ways this was the Crusades was part of a wider conflict which went from one end of the Mediterranean to the other. But, of course, when one's finally dealing with the Crusades, one's referring to, although there were wars, crusading wars in Spain, for example, um, one is referring to what was going on in the Middle East, in Palestine and Syria, really, and Egypt. And specifically, I suppose, the area around Jerusalem was a centre for some of this activity. Actually, for the longest period of time, there was no military action in and around Jerusalem at all. That the uh, Crusades, the Crusader armies and the states, the Crusader states they established there, were immensely successful in um, uh, holding back uh, the Arab and the Turkish forces. And so if you were living in Jerusalem at that time, you were hardly aware that there was any problem at all. The real problem was if you were living in the north, in northern Syria, uh, that's where the Turkish uh, attacks were constantly occurring. And that's where the early battles were. And it took quite a long time. It took uh, nearly a century before... Uh, things reached Jerusalem. Well, Saladin eventually took Jerusalem, Jerusalem in 1187, 90 years after the First Crusade. Mm. Okay, so specifically amidst all this kind of activity going on, what do you think were the specific events or actions that led to the formation of the Templars? Right, well, the, the Templars were originally founded as a, a sort of police force, a gendarmerie, to protect pilgrims visiting the holy places. Um, pilgrims had been, pilgrimages had been going on since uh, almost the very beginnings of Christianity to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem, to, um, uh, to the River Jordan, to the baptism site of uh, Jesus and so on. So there was a long tradition of that. And even after the Arab conquest of the Middle East, pilgrimages continued, but they became increasingly dangerous. Uh, not just that they suffered uh, discouragement or persecution, but uh, the Middle East became uh, very um, insecure. There were bandits which who, who bothered, I mean, this is during Arab times, these bandits bothered as much the Arabs as anybody else. They were never quite able to secure the country against uh, this banditry. And so... Um, this sort of thing continued once the crusade had arrived in the Middle East and these crusader states had been established. And to stop this banditry, the Templars were formed and they became a sort of an escort 
party, a convoy party to help people go from one holy place to another. So that's how the Templars began. But their role expanded after that, uh, after a few decades. Uh, they became identified with the defense of the Holy Land in its entirety, not just protecting pilgrims, pil pilgrims but um, protecting the borders, uh, manning castles, uh, defending the country, going into battle, all of which had not been the case. They were, they, their original um, foundation was as um, knights who had become monks. They were actually a religious order. They were monks, but they were monks with weapons. And so it was, in their minds, justifiable to defend pilgrims against bandits. But then they made this leap of becoming armed monks who actually rode into battle. And that changed things entirely. They became the elite military force in the medieval world. Okay, so why do you think their function changed from being um, these monks into um, being such a huge um, kind of economic force? Well, economic force is another story, but uh, why did their function change as a military force to begin with? Uh, because of an increase in attacks. During the first several decades of the Crusader states, uh, the states fit in perfectly well with the other states, the other Muslim states in the area. There were lots of quite small emirates uh, in, in the Middle East, and they were all happy to get on with one another. There was no immediate reaction against the Crusades, no massive uh, campaign against the Crusades. That only happened uh, about 40 or 50 years afterward, when certain Turkish dynasts, people like Zengi and Nur al-Din, and then eventually Saladin, when these guys came along, and they wanted to establish uh, authority over the whole Middle East, uh, they, you could say they did it for the sake of religion, but you could also say they did it for the sake of power and establishing dynasties of their own, and that they pressed religion into service. In other words, if they could persuade other people that they were doing it for the good of Islam, then they could win allies and support. And so these became, on the one hand, dynastic wars and also religious wars, and they succeeded, people like Saladin, in uniting these smaller uh, Arab and Turkish states in the Middle East into a single body. In fact, actually, not just succeeded in uniting them. In the 13 years before Saladin took Jerusalem, 12 of those years were devoted entirely to fighting fellow Muslims. All of that 13 years, he probably spent only about 12 months fighting crusaders, Christians. Um, so that was the threat, that there was now um, a, a new unified enemy facing the Christian states of the Middle East, unified because religion had unified them, and they had been unified by force of arms, by their fellow Muslims knocking their heads together and unifying them against the Christians. And that meant you had to have a strong army, castles, all that sort of thing. The, the, the Templars were a response to that. Okay, fantastic. So moving on to the economic function, how did that come about? Well, the Templars were um, a very expensive 
uh, proposition. Uh, a man on a horse, a man with a sword and a suit of armor sitting on a horse was very expensive. Even if he was in France, for example, I forget exactly how many acres of land, but it's an awful large acreage that you need to pay for a man on a horse with a sword in a suit of armor. It's a little bit like how much does it cost to, uh, to fly some supersonic jet aircraft today? It's, uh, you know, it has one pilot in it, and it zooms around. And you, but the expense of that is millions upon millions. And the same was very, was very true with uh, um, the Templars. They were highly trained people. Uh, a horse, to have that always ready, and not just one horse, they had to have spare horses, and the horses couldn't be bred in the Middle East because there wasn't enough pasturage, and so they had to be shipped out to the Middle East uh, to feed those horses all the time, whether or not they were being used in combat, uh, to, to uh, arm these fellows. All of that was very expensive, and to pay for that, the money wasn't raised in Palestine. The money was raised from donors, uh, devout donors in the West, in France, in England, in uh, Italy, and so on. And so these people were putting money, donating money to the Templars, but at the same time, they discovered that actually they could deposit money with the Templars if, for example, they wanted to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So if you were a Frenchman, in, say, Paris, you could put some money with the Templars in Paris, then go off on your pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and along the way, if you needed some money, you could call in on some local Templar organization and say, well, you know, can I have a few more quid, please? I mean, it was a sort of like a Thomas Cook operation, in some sense, as traveler's checks. And that grew. It um, went when subsequent crusades headed east, uh, the Templars became the bankers for that. They would have treasure ships lying off the coast of Egypt, for example, ready to disperse funds that had been shipped over from France. They also became uh, the bankers to the king of France. So the king of France did not have his own treasury. Uh, he deposited his money with the Templars, and the Templars kept the accounts. They, the Templars were trusted because they were religious figures. As I say, they were, they were monks, and they had a reputation for absolute integrity. Uh, so you could leave money with them and count on getting it back, either locally or anywhere else in the Mediterranean world. Fantastic. So, I mean, their economic success was vital in their military success. It was vital in military success, and it was vital in the success of the Crusades and the maintaining of the, um, the Christian states in the Middle East, which um, was equally true. I mean, it's not as though the West was alone in needing to finance what was going on in the Middle East. The, on the other side, the Muslims, the Turks and the Arabs, were also doing the same thing. In other words, they were conquering lands, they were taxing the population, whether it was in Iraq or Iran or in Egypt uh, or in Asia Minor, in order to fight in Palestine and Syria. So both sides were sort of doing the same thing, except that in the case of um, the West, it was much more like a modern-day banking operation. And in fact, it was really the beginning of banking in Europe. 
Okay, great. Something the book deals with um, is the change from the knights being these really exalted figures into, um, in, in a short space of time, the opposite. Um, why do you think that happened? Well, there was always a certain criticism of the Crusades, even at the time. And the reason for that was that the in the 11th century, there was something known as the investiture controversy, where the popes were saying, we have the right to appoint local priests and bishops and so on throughout uh, Christendom. Whereas local secular kings and emperors like the uh, German emperor would say, no, we want to appoint those people. And the reason they argued over it was because whoever did the appointing also wielded influence, uh, political influence, and could also collect money. And so the papacy was asserting its authority throughout the 11th century, saying, no, that's our right. And they won that battle. Uh, and then as soon as they had won that battle, the, the right to appoint bishops and priests throughout and not be interfered with by secular rulers, they then also launched the crusade. And so the crusade was seen as another manifestation of papal power. But there were people back in Europe, there were kings back in Europe who resented papal power. And so they would carp about the Crusades. So there was always this criticism right at the beginning of the Crusades. And if anything ever went wrong, that criticism increased. But it was usually a way of hitting at the papacy. It was a way of, say, a French king making himself more important, a German emperor making himself more powerful. Uh, and when finally the Holy Land was lost, that is when the secular rulers turned against the papacy and they turned against their creature who were the Templars because the Templars, when they were established, owed nothing to anybody except the Pope. They owed nothing to the local patriarch in Jerusalem. They owed nothing to the king of Jerusalem. They owed nothing to the French king, to no one, to no religious or secular authority. They owed their loyalty only to the Pope. And so to attack the Templars was a way of attacking the Pope. And if the power of the Pope diminished, so the power of the Templars diminished. And so at the very end, when the whole crusading enterprise was falling apart, it fell on the heads of the Templars, and they became uh, the victims. Why do you think then that the fall of the Templars was so swift? Was there a single point or a few single points that led to that change? Well, in 1291, uh, Acre, the port city of Acre, uh, in what is now northern Syria, uh, sorry, northern Israel, uh, fell to uh, the Mamelukes. The Mamelukes are Turkish. Uh, uh, warriors based in Egypt. And that was basically the end of the whole crusading venture. And that had been not only the new capital of the Christian states in the east after the fall of Jerusalem a century before, but it was also the base from which the Templars operated. And from that point on, the Templars had no base. They had no permanent base. Uh, and so they were sort of lost souls. They were wandering around and they were vulnerable. Uh, they had lost their toehold. Uh, they were sort of wandering salesmen. 
uh, and they were vulnerable to complaint, uh, but they still had a lot of money. And the French king uh, wanted money. He was uh, at war with England. Uh, he was at war in Flanders. He was expanding the French state. He wanted to increase his revenue. Uh, and as I said, it was the Templars who were holding uh, the, the running the treasury of the King of France. And so the first thing he did was he grabbed uh, the Templar treasury and confiscated that and confiscated all their lands. And in order to justify that, he accused them of all sorts of crimes. He accused them of sodomy and blasphemy and heresy and etc., etc. And when, I suppose when a state says that, uh, a lot of people listen and they think, well, it must be true, it must be half true. And so the Templars suffered. They were burnt at the stake, their leaders were burnt at the stake. Uh, anyone who protested among them um, uh, was made to pay for it by torture or immolation. And I suppose if you're somebody who's standing by and watching, you think, well, you know, I'll keep my mouth shut. There must be something wrong with these guys. So moving on to this book, what kind of sources uh, did you use in compiling it? First of all, I used original sources. There are chronicles of the time by both Christians and Muslims, and I've used modern translations of those sources. Uh, and there's a wealth of histories written about that period. But um, there are two sources that I found particularly interesting. Uh, one is a book by a historian called Moshe Gill, G-I-L, and the book is called A History of Palestine, 634 to 1099, published by Cambridge University Press. And he's gone through the documents found in the Cairo Geniza. Uh, there's a synagogue in Cairo, Ben Ezra, synagogue, which has stood there for over a thousand years. And a Geniza is a sort of um, cubbyhole where you throw your old documents. Any, in a, in, among Jews, if, if a document has the word God or the name of God on it, it can't just be thrown into the waste paper basket. It has to be put somewhere aside. And since almost any letter you might write to someone, even a business letter might begin some reference to the name of God. So all of these things became, um, they had to be saved. And so they'd be thrown into this sort of cubbyhole in this synagogue. And that's the Geniza, this sort of storeroom. And this Geniza was discovered in the 19th century and its contents were removed mostly to Cambridge and to Manchester universities. And very slowly, scholars have been going through them and piecing them together and finding, oh, here's a letter from so-and-so to so-and-so. And they would build up these sort of family links and commercial links. So oh, here's a business letter from so-and-so in Cairo to so-and-so in Aleppo, that sort of thing. Building up a complete picture of what life was like in the Middle East at the time, not from the point of view of an official chronicle, but from the point of view of the people actually living those lives at that time. A man who might be trading in wheat, a man who might be selling fish, uh, a man who suffered from some outrage uh, against the synagogue by uh, his Muslim overlord or whatever it is. And so that's, that's created a new... Um, 
a new history, new sources, and that's been, that was very valuable to me in putting together a picture of the Middle East as it was before the Crusades. Um, and another source that I found very useful was um, a couple of books by a man called Ronnie Ellenblum, uh, who is a, a geographer uh, at, um, at the university, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And he's uh, done a lot of excavating work. Now, these people were settlers. So people who came from France and Italy and Spain and all over Europe who settled in the Middle East after the First Crusade. And they lived there as farmers, as artisans, as builders, and so on and so forth. They lived ordinary lives. Now, until recently, that was thought not to be true. It was thought that they lived behind defensive walls, they lived in castles, that they had to protect themselves against the local population, which was hostile to them, and so on. And what Ron Ronnie Ellenbloom has discovered through his excavations is that there were hundreds and hundreds of these Frankish villages, that there was wide-scale uh, settlement. Uh, and he's been able to identify their trades and their names and so on and so forth, and to show how they did mix in with the local population and how the incomers, the Franks and the local population, who, by the way, the majority of people in the Middle East right up to the Crusades were still Christian. They weren't Muslim. Uh, there was still a largely Christian population. And although they might have been uh, Greek Orthodox or uh, not, not um, Western Catholic, not Roman Catholic, Nevertheless, they shared Christian sympathy and made common cause. And very often, these Frankish settlers would go to the same church as their Greek Orthodox neighbors. They would share holidays. They would intermarry. Uh, they developed a common culture and so on. Anyway, a lot of this um, new material has been revealed by Ronnie Ellenbloom through his excavations. And he wrote two books about it. One is called Frankish Rural Settlement in the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem. That's published by Cambridge University Press. And another one is called Crusader Castles and Modern Histories, also by Cambridge University Press. Um, and so these have given a completely new cast to events uh, both before and after the Crusades in the Middle East, the books by Ellen Bloom and by Gill. And I think too many writers, in fact, actually every writer, uh, up to the present moment, who writes about the Crusades, has not taken on board the material uh, in these sources, which I think changed completely the perspective of what was going on there. What did the demise of the Knights Templar mean for the region? In a sense, the demise of the Knights Templars uh, is the same as the demise of the uh, Frankish uh, states in, in the East because uh, they became almost one and the same. The chief defense of those Frankish kingdoms were the Templars. And so their demise meant that the Christian population, which had already been suffering before the Crusades uh, and had suffered discrimination and persecution and destruction of their churches and uh, unjust taxation and so on, and third-rate citizenship, if you could count it as any kind of citizenship at all. Uh, for a brief moment, they enjoyed full rights, they enjoyed uh, local governments that respected their interests and so on, and all that was lost after the Crusades. And they were once again 
uh, persecuted and attacked, uh, uh, which is very much uh, documented. The Maronites, for example, the Christians of Lebanon, that's when they took to the mountains, where they still live, uh, in northern Lebanon. Uh, they took to the mountains to avoid uh, the incoming Muslim armies and the persecution and the destruction that was wreaked upon them. And there was absolutely a campaign to destroy uh, the Maronite community in the Middle East at that time. So, in other words, Christianity did receive a severe uh, knockback at that time, and it was really then that large-scale conversions to Islam began, because they had lost their support. They had lost their support from the West, and they had lost their support from the Byzantine Empire, which was a Christian empire. So they were alone, they were cut off, they were oppressed, and they were finished. Um, the other thing that happened was that the entire coast of the Middle East, of Syria and Palestine, was uh, was destroyed. Every town, every village, every castle, everything along the coast was destroyed by by the Muslims. In this case, finally, the Mamluks, these Turkish uh, warriors who were based in Egypt, uh, and they did this to prevent a Western force ever landing in the East again. In other words, it was a kind of scorched earth policy. But I don't think it was entirely that. I think they simply wanted to keep the population entirely away from the coastland and concentrate its attention on uh, this new avenue of power and commerce which ran inland between Cairo and Damascus and on to Baghdad, rather than the Mediterranean avenues of commerce, which meant exposure to Christianity, to a classical culture, a, medieval, a common medieval culture, and so on. So that entire coast um, was uh, laid waste. And that remained true right up to the beginning of the 20th century. So that uh, even the Ottomans in the late 19th century had to invite people to settle in Palestine uh, either invite them or drag them in. So many Egyptians, Algerians, Chechens uh, were uh, brought to Palestine to settle it because it had been so uh, depopulated. And of course, Jews also came. That was Michael Haag speaking to Matt Elton. The Tragedy of the Templars, The Rise and Fall of the Crusades is out now, published by Profile. And we'll be running a review of the book in the magazine soon. And speaking of the magazine, I'd just like to remind listeners that our January issue is still on sale. In it, you'll find articles on the Black Prince, Malta in the Second World War, the history of music, and the places that inspired Jane Austen. You can get hold of it in all good news agents, as well as on our digital formats. And that's about all for this episode, but just before we go, I'd like to briefly tell you about an exciting event we've got coming up. On Monday the 25th of March at the British Academy in London, historians Maxine Berg and Emma Griffin will be debating the impact of the Industrial Revolution on both workers and consumers. It'll be a great opportunity to hear two top historians and you'll also get a chance to meet them both afterwards and purchase signed copies of their books. For more details and for tickets, please head to historyextra.com forward slash lectures. Next week... We'll be talking about Jane Austen and taking a look at the new Lincoln biopic. Do join us for that. The History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.
a collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.